comedy series What We Do in the Shadows imagines what a slacker reality show might look like if the roommates were vampires. Their nights out are in search of fresh blood, and their fights at home are about cleaning up after your, well, you know, meals. The show is based on a 2014 film of the same name, co-directed, co-written, and co-starring Jemaine Clement and Taika Waititi. A new cast of vampires inhabits the new show, which is on FX. I'm Stephen Thompson. And I'm Linda Holmes. We're rising to the occasion today of What We Do in the Shadows. Here with me and Stephen in the studio is Glenn Weldon of NPR's Arts Desk. Hi, Glenn. Hey, Linda. And in our fourth chair coming to us from the great city of Chicago is Tasha Robinson of The Verge and the Next Picture Show podcast. Hi, Tasha. Hello. We are so happy to have you with us. I'm going to go to Glenn first. Glenn, you are a a known-to-me big fan of the 2014 film. Very much. Uh, You also have reviewed this TV show for NPR. That's Mm -hmm. available on NPR as you hear this episode. What did you think of the the TV adaptation? I was so worried about it, so worried, because I love the film so much. And, you know, I'm always here for vampire parody, notionally, as long as we acknowledge that this particular patch of cultural real estate has been trodden a lot. You got Mm -hmm. your Warhol, you got your George Hamilton in the 70s. 70s, you got your Mel Brooks. Yeah. You arguably have your Stephanie Myers. And uh, <laughs> documentary parodies are also, this is, we're talking about 2014, five years ago. They sure. were a little less thick on the ground. Mockumentary, Mockumentary, as we might say. Right. So the movie and the show trades on this, this notion of over-the-top gothic tropes of, you know, horror couched in the utterly mundane world of the everyday right. roommate disagreements and kind of thing. So the fact that it was made in New Zealand, I think, helped put it over the top for me. Their national sensibility seems to be one of an unprepossessing people, right. underdogs. Right. That helps when your main characters are slaughtering folks a lot. I figured you can't transplant that, right? Because if you transplant it to the States, our national cultural identity, our comedic identity is not dry and deadpan. It is more loud, right, more obnoxious. Sure, we tend sure. to lunge for jokes as opposed to just mutter them as asides. I think the show is most successful when it steps away from what the movie did and finds its own things yeah. that are more American. Yeah. Uh, so I like the character of Nadja, played by Natasha Dimitrio a lot. Didn't see enough of Beanie Feldstein. We've only yeah. seen the first uh, four. four of these. and But I know enough about that actress and the situation that the show puts her in that I think there's going to be something fun coming there. But man, Colin Robinson yeah. is played by the great <laughs> Mark Pruch, <laughs> who was so good on Better Call Saul. And just as an aside, Google Kenny K. Strass Strasser to see uh, a lot of him in his element. This character of Colin Robinson as an energy vampire is unique to the series. It's, yeah. it's something they've introduced. It is so funny. That guy is so great. So yes, they've also added an element of a ticking clock to drive the different plots, which mm-hmm. is something that the movie never bothered with because, mm-hmm. crucially, it was 86 minutes long. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I think... <laughs> I worry that the one joke is going to get tired, but I am all in for this series. Okay. So, Tasha, I want to ask you a couple of questions. Let me ask you first, where were you on the 2014 film? I enjoyed it immensely. Uh, Taika Waititi and Jimmy and Clement, like their their humor doesn't necessarily always land with me, but it's so very, very dry. And uh, I, like Lynn, I'm always down for a vampire parody. It is, I mean, I love me some dark fantasy, but it is certainly a genre that encourages self-importance and, and dry seriousness in a way that's just so ripe for puncturing. So I enjoyed the film immensely. It was just kind of a rolling surprise. And I think that's in part because 
my understanding is it was, despite the fact that Watiti and Clement were credited as writers, they apparently had a two-page script and the rest of it was improv. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it has that feeling of looseness. It feels shaggy in that way. And where do you where do you come down on the TV adaptation? Well, like Glenn, I was really worried about it because it just, it seemed like... <sighs> potentially a very small group of jokes that wouldn't necessarily stretch out into into a longer thing. I saw the first episode at a preview at South by Southwest and I was I was not encouraged because I don't inherently find silly accents and over-the-top costumes funny. Right. And if you were to create a pie chart of all of the humor in this series, the slice of pie that would be silly accents and silly costumes would be big enough that you wouldn't want to eat it in public like with your family, you would want to eat it at home on the couch <laughs> like, this is while, quite a metaphor. while watching <laughs> some very shameful TV. Right. It's, you know, it's a big slice of pie. Uh, so the first episode really didn't quite land with me. But as the as I saw the, the rest of the four preview episodes, it feels like it's developing into like a, a bigger and, and more yeah. interesting thing. This uh, series is much, much more tightly scripted. Mm-hmm, like they mm-hmm. did actually write all of these lines. There's very little improv going on. And yet they managed to capture the same loose, shaggy, in the moment feel. The camera feels very loose. The actors feel very loose. It still feels like the same product, even though it's a different setting, different characters, different storylines. I think they did a really admirable job of capturing what was fun and unique and interesting about the first project without just making it a tired clone. Yeah. Stephen, you are over there nodding at things that Tasha is saying, and I want to come over to you before uh, you simply agree with everything (laughs) Tasha said. Uh, Talk to me about how you reacted to this. Well, I come at this show from a completely different angle. I had not seen the 2014 movie when I sat down and watched the first four episodes of the series. I watched the first four episodes of the series and then went and watched the movie and really kind of enjoyed all of them at roughly the same level. From my angle, I didn't necessarily come in with these expectations of, man, I hope this lives up to the movie. I just went and just enjoyed them, even though it's different characters, a completely different setting. It's reset from Wellington, New Zealand to Staten Island, <laughs> um, which they have a lot of fun with. Yeah. What they have in common is a core concept. You can you can drill down to three words, vampires as dweebs. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> other than that, they managed to, they managed to create completely different different worlds out of the same basic core concept. But with the TV show, as as you said, the fact that it is less improvised gives it a, a sense that a little bit more thought has been put into it, almost like they've had five years to just kind of swirl these ideas around in their head and come up with more and more twists on them. Yeah. I kind of liked both equally, and I liked both a lot. I think the, the things that the TV show adds are almost uniformly great additions. Yeah, uh, you mentioned Beanie Feldstein. I love her. You mentioned Mark Proch, mm-hmm. who is so, so funny. And they, they've already found funny twists on the idea of his character. We haven't mentioned Harvey Guillain as the familiar <laughs> to one of the main yeah. vampires. The movie... Guillermo. <laughs> Guillermo. The movie has mentioned and has kind of as a little side plot the idea that the vampires have familiars, have kind of human slave assistants who, who 
kind of help out with the promise that they may one day be turned into vampires. Yeah. The movie mentions that, but the TV show really digs, digs into, into it, it yeah. and makes the vampires seem so much more dweeby and banal as as a result. I think that character is very, very funny. Yeah, and it, it really digs in a lot more to the idea that Guillermo has this aspiration to become a vampire, that he thinks it's so cool, even while you are also getting this message, like you said, that the vampires are kind of dweebs. He thinks this is the height of cool because I think when the show is most successful for me, and the movie is this way too, when it's most successful for me is when it is contrasting, like Glenn said, this very mundane, low-key kind of stuff with the incredibly high-key pop culture idea of vampires where everything is delivered at this very, very elevated kind of pitch and drama. And it's the, like Tasha said, it's the blur, like the the swirling cape and the big teeth and the blood everywhere. and the, But also these... You but know, also the Staten Island City Council. Yes. Right, and, and I think my favorite thing that happens in these four episodes is the Staten Island City Council meeting. And I think that's where it is most successful. I missed Taika Waititi performing in it right. uh, and Clem, Clement too, but more... The film and the TV series open with a very similar scene. Very similar. I am just a Taika YTT person, yeah. and I, I love watching him so much that he is my favorite thing about the movie. So I did feel yeah, that he brings a real sweetness to that. It, movie. It, that does. that kind of like gentle way that he tries to get them to sort of like just be good roommates. It, 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 it <laughs> with is the a chore wheel. That's a, the chore wheel. That's a little bit missing from the TV show for me. Mm-hmm. I did find the TV show a little bit uneven. I you mentioned the character of Nadja Glenn. I actually think she's the least well realized for me. Mm-hmm. I th- she feels a little to me like the woman because yeah. there are there are no women vampires in the main cast of the first one mm-hmm. and one of the main vampires in this one is Nadja. She feels a little bit to me like the no pun intended the vamp kind of the the woman. Mm-hmm. And I don't necessarily think she has an established comedic style the same way that the other two vampires, the kind of one that's almost like a puffed up academic mm-hmm. and one that's a sort of a, you know, aspires to be Vlad the Impaler or whatever, sort of high drama guy. I don't feel like she has as full of a character. Now, maybe she's the one who has a storyline with Beanie Feldstein mm-hmm. originally, and maybe that will help bring that out in her. And I did miss the shagginess of the improv film. I do think the TV show's a little more labored in trying to get plot done. I felt that a little bit. Mm-hmm. I didn't always feel it was as successful. But when it is successful, like at the Staten, City Council, the Staten Island City Council meeting, it's very successful. And so I, I very much enjoyed some elements while being a little bit left cold by others. I was glad that it didn't have unrelenting spurting blood, which is the film and the first part of the TV series have some kind of comedy blood. Grand Guignol. Exactly. Exactly. Comedy blood, or as Stephen uses the correct term. (laughs) Um, That gets old. And so I was glad that it didn't focus on that. The other thing in terms of effects, when you are using a handheld camera and you insert special effects in them, they just pop so much more because they seem kind of tossed off. And in fact, of course, that's a a very elaborate thing that they have to do. I agree. Tasha, what do you think about the the elements that were added by the show? Well, I mean, I think they were deeply necessary because, I mean, that that opening scene where it really does feel like the show is just going to recapitulate the movie, Mm -hmm. that was what alarmed me more than anything. And throughout the first episode, you kind of have that, we have 
have roommate problems. We have like this ancient vampire that we have to deal with that's just this sort of monstrous creature. And I thought, oh, they're doing a show for people who haven't seen the movie. So I found that first episode, honestly, pretty alarming um, because it had that feel of when you take a book and try to turn it into a, a five season television show and everything just feels like this is a familiar thing drawn out to excess. So the fact that the show almost immediately veers in a different direction, I'm glad that there's a, a plot going on. It's still a very loose plot. It doesn't seem all that urgent. It just feels like a series of hooks that the writers can hang a few more ideas on if yeah. they want to. Yeah. What did you think about Nadja? Uh, I agree with you that she seems underdeveloped and that hopefully her relationship to the Beanie Feldstein's character is actually going in a direction. I found it refreshing that for a, like a hot minute, the show kind of pushes in the direction of her character is like sexually interested in everyone and her backstory is about having sex with a lot of vampires and then almost immediately they push in the direction of no Laszlo is the exact same thing mm-hmm. like there's there's a gag that I think plays really well about her long-term sexual relationship with like the elder vampire in the mix but it turns out Laszlo has that exact same sexual relationship with yeah. him mm-hmm. and I thought that was just a really nice way of undercutting the way as you say the woman character uh, is so often just about some form of of sexuality and possibly in a setting like this, some form of of deviant sexuality. Yeah. Before we go, I do want to talk a little bit. I mentioned the kind of grand guignol, as Stephen said, the violence aspect. Do you have more you want to say about that, Thompson? Yeah, I did appreciate that the show kind of does seem to tilt away from that. It also seems to do a little bit, it does a little bit less of like slaughtering innocence in in a way that sometimes bothered me about, for example, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I did did enjoy the fact that that the show kind of tilts away from from just kind of the wholesale slaughter without ignoring it entirely, which wouldn't be true to these characters. I have a visceral hatred of films like Halloween because stalking happens. Uh, Home invasions happen. People die bloodily. Nobody gets bit by a vampire. And when it's in a couch in a comedic sensibility, this is Black comedy is is kind of my jam, and and the levels of grotesquerie, the the over the top nature of it, the fact that everybody has a silly accent and flouncy shirts, takes the violence and transforms it into something kind of more abstract for me. Mm-hmm. I would much rather sit through a much bloodier version of this show than see another minute of a slasher film. Yeah, I get that. I understand that. Well, I want to hear from all of you what you think about what we do in the shadows movie and. TV show once you get a chance to see it. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash PCHH or tweet us at PCHH and tell us what you think. When we come back, it's going to be time for our favorite segment, What is Making Us Happy This Week? So come right back. Support for NPR and the following message come from Luminary. Luminary is a free new podcast app launching this spring. With Luminary, you can listen to the shows you already love or sign up for Luminary Premium, which gives you access to a network of 40 ad-free podcasts available only on Luminary Premium. And sign up for Luminary Premium before April 22nd to save a dollar off your subscription every month for the rest of your first year. Terms apply. Support for NPR and the following message come from Pushkin Industries, presenting the podcast Against the Rules, exploring the corrosion of fairness in America. Michael Lewis takes listeners from student loan call centers to the courts of Uzbekistan to the new trading hubs of Wall Street in New Jersey. 
He speaks with a U.S. senator and the coach of the Golden State Warriors, the architect of the 9-11 Settlement Fund, and a man who got rich off the 2008 financial crisis. Listen to Against the Rules wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Pop Culture Happy Hour. It's time for our favorite segment of this week and every week. What is making us happy this week? Stephen Thompson, what is making you happy this week? We are at a loud time in American history. I am coming out of a very loud time in my life, South by Southwest. I have been enjoying for the last couple days a bunch of very quiet, plaintive, calming, head-clearing music. Two album recommendations for you to track down through the streaming service of your choice. One is A Different Forest by the pianist Hauschka. Uh, he worked on the Oscar-nominated score for the movie Lion, using mostly treated piano. This is just a bunch of beautiful kind of solo piano. Let's hear a little bit of a, of a piece called Hike. The other one is by a musician named Caleb Burhans, uh, an album called Past Lives. Caleb Burhans has worked with, among others, the Max Richter Orchestra, who is one of my go-tos for head-clearing music. Let's hear a little bit of a piece called, uh, near and dear to my heart, A Moment for Jason Molina. So both of these both of these albums are just wonderful kind of enveloping instrumental music if you want to tune out anything and everything. Nice. Thank you very much, Stephen Thompson. Glenn Weldon, what's making you happy this week? Australian performer Brendan McLean, who I've talked about before and we'll talk about again, has a brand new album. His first actually full-length album. He's just done EPs before. Uh, I talked about Fun Bang 1, which is one of them, back in 2016. That thing was all bops. Uh, this new album is called End the Boyfriends. Uh, I've been listening to it nonstop for days. Uh, here's a taste. It's your bed that we're lying in. Fourteen limbs and a wedding ring. Tell me everything, save me. That is the song Quiet Company, one of the more up-tempo numbers on what is actually a pretty moody, emotional, mid-tempo, very thoughtful album. It is the beginning of autumn in Australia right now. He's Australian. This is a great album for a Christmas in the air and the days growing short. But there are moments of pure queer joy on this thing. For example, 14 limbs and a wedding ring. Tell yes. me everything. Uh-huh. Uh, that mean you can, here in America, take the top off the uh, car. You can blast it uh, while you um, uh, hose down your screen windows. Is that a spring cleaning thing? Yeah, uh-huh, sure. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, anyway, it's great. And it's called And the Boyfriends. Thank you very much, Glenn Weldon. Tasha Robinson, what is making you happy this week? Uh, There is a documentary called Hail Satan, with a question mark, directed by uh, documentarian Penny Lane, who also did Arn Nixon. And it's about the Satanic Temple, the rise of the Satanic Temple, which the Satanic Temple is an organization kind of built on uh, rebellion and iconoclasm. It kind of rose to prominence over the past few years as a like a political organization kind of built around independent thought and stunty protests. 
Penny Lane uh, tracks where it began, what they've been up to. Um, I mean, if you're if you're going into it trying to understand the Satanic Temple, uh, it's actually a very good primer. It winds up being, regardless of your beliefs on the existence of Satan or the idea of using Satan as a, a comic tool or a political tool, it just winds up being a very lively, very fun, very accessible, very enjoyable documentary. It's coming to theaters on April 19th. Um, it's going to have like a, what's going to be one of those small films that has a small rollout throughout the nation in art house theaters. People may have to look for it a little bit. So Hail Satan, Penny Lane uh, documentary coming to theaters soon. Okay, thank you very much, Tasha Robinson. This is going to be the week of vampires, Satan, and a lot of relaxing music. <laughs> um, Jessica, hit me with my uh, selection. And you come to me on a summer breeze, keep me warm in your love, and you softly leave. And it's me you need to show how deep is your love. So those are not the dulcet tones of uh, the Bee Gees, as you might have thought. Those are the dulcet tones of Jonathan Colton, who, uh, as many of you know, <laughs> many of you know, is the uh, <laughs> well, yeah, but uh, is the uh, musical uh, genius at Ask Me Another at NPR. I know him a little bit, so you know I'm in the bag for this. This is a, an album called Some Guys that he has just released, which is replications, very carefully done of '70s soft rock essentially so you've got your how deep is your love you've got your uh, your easy your on and on and Colton has gone back and kind of recreated these songs in a way that puts the 70s production kind of in dialogue with a modern artist and encourages you to kind of think about that production style. This is not a, wouldn't it be funny if I did a punk cover of What a Wonderful right. World or whatever the shorts punk ironic lunchbox crowd was doing in the 90s. <laughs> this is a uh, this is a separate thing. This is done with great love and appreciation. It is not meant to be ironic. You are meant to have a moment in which you think, wow, How Deep Is Your Love is a beautiful song and a beautiful record. And when it is freed from its nostalgic kind of pull of having been something you're, that people's parents and grandparents listened to, you realize how beautiful it is. So I hugely recommend this record. It's called Some Guys from Jonathan Colton, and it's available on your uh, streaming services or for digital purchase. Uh, so Some Guys by Jonathan Colton. And that brings us to the end of our show. You can find all of us on Twitter. You can find me at Linda Holmes. You can find Stephen at I Dislike Stephen. You can find Glenn at G.H. Weldon and Tasha at Tasha Robinson. You can follow our producer Jessica Reedy at Jessica underscore Reedy and our producer emeritus and music director Mike Katzif at Mike Katzif, K-A-T-Z-I-F. Mike's band, Hello Come In, provides the music you are bobbing your head to right now. So thanks to all of you for being here. Thank you. Thank you, you, as always. I will check the chore wheel on the way out and make sure to get my cleaning done. Absolutely. Thank you, Tasha, for joining us from Chicago. And thank you for listening. And if you have a second and you're so inclined, please do subscribe to our newsletter. It is at npr.org slash popculturenewsletter. We will see you right back here next week. 
What does what you eat or don't eat say about who you are and where you fit in? It's the memories and the feelings of nostalgia that is what connects you to your family. It's not chicken or beef or pork. This is Gene Demby of NPR's Code Switch. This week on the menu, food and family. <laughs> 